1: even at 30,000
0: feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's
1: chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. Dw Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're listening to the addictive podcast. I'm your host, Mark Burrows, and with me as usual is Michael Crouch. Today's guest is Kirsten Lester, joining us remotely via Zoom from Athens, Georgia. I'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Appalachian Standard Hemp and CBD Company, out of the Appalachian Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. Their hemp is greenhouse, field, and indoor grown in small batches year round. They have some really cool products, including CBD tinctures, hemp rollies, hemp flower, and even a CBD salve. I recently used the CBD salve on my back and it actually worked to my surprise. Use promo code TAP15 at checkout to receive 15% off, all orders $30 and up. That's capital T-A-P-15 at checkout. All proceeds received by using this promo code go directly towards our 501c3 nonprofit syringe services program called Challenges, Inc. You can visit challengesinc.org to learn more about this unique program in upstate South Carolina.
0: So today's episode is going to be on the current state of the criminal justice system and individuals with uh, substance use that violates state and federal statutes. And uh, Kirsten is a person in long-term recovery, uh, but she also has some uh, lived experience with the criminal justice system, as it relates to our current policy, drug policies within the United States. Um, so today, we we're going to kind of talk to her, and we can get into that. But um, Kirsten, you can try to you can kind of give us some background on like what what that uh, process was like, and and okay. how you, how your experience was in relating to how you. Um, the whole process of charges and yeah, how much help you received during that time or did not receive.
2: Okay. Um, so, yeah, um, I used substances for most of my younger years. Um, till I was about 21. Um, I didn't, have any sort of consequence of my actions until then. And then I got arrested. Um,
1: How old were you when you started?
2: I started using
1: yeah. oh,
2: 12. My mom taught me at a very young age that I could take a pill and solve my problems. Mm. Um, and I just went with that for a long time because I really wanted something to talk about with my mom. Um, and it led me down a really, screwed up pass of um, chaos and drama. And eventually I got involved with the wrong people and um, they let me get arrested for <laughs> their stuff. So my experience in criminal justice, so eight different arrests in a year for various Charges, misdemeanors, and then eventually felonies. Um,
1: like all drug-related stuff.
2: I mean, shoplifting was first, but it was to fuel the drug habit. Yeah. Um, and then um, got it for burglary for breaking in somebody's house to steal, you know, for drugs. Um, yeah. and then eventually, um, got arrested for possession with intent to distribute. Um, of my substance that I, um, abuse most often. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily know if I agree with like substance of choice or any of that. Um, but, uh,
1: Were you actually, I'm just curious, were you actually intending to distribute or was it just the amount
2: Yeah, we had a pretty substantial amount. He was, his intentions were to distribute. Um, (laughs) My intentions were to do whatever was left in the bag. Um, Right. And um, when we got arrested, he had a criminal history. And I had been arrested a few times, but I wasn't convicted of anything yet. And um, he let me fall for it. He told them that it was all mine. And I went to federal prison for five years and three months
1: and that was your boyfriend you're talking about mm-hmm. at the time okay
0: when you were in federal prison did they were they aware that you have an you had an issue with with uh i guess it was methamphetamine use mhm did, yeah. did how much treatment so how much opportunity for treatment or any kind of recovery services were you offered while you were in federal prison
2: so they had um some classes um there were none of which Recommended by a counselor, they were all if you chose to find them, like it wasn't like a resource that was offered. Um, and then they have a program in the federal system called RDAP, which is Residential Drug and Alcohol Program. And I wasn't offered that until my fourth year um, in prison. And I feel like maybe if it was offered at the beginning of, of my sentence, that I might have gotten a little bit more out of it. Um, because at that like at the time, I really was just fed up with being in prison. I was angry, I was pissed off, I didn't want to be there um and when they said that, the only reason I thought that it might be a good idea was because they offer a year off of your sentence to do it um, mm-hmm. and then I wound up with some health issues. I have cancer, so um found that out while I was in there, and um. <clears throat> I had to be sent to a medical facility, which offered different kinds of treatment there. Um, And at the medical facility, they had a little bit more um, recovery-based stuff, like trauma therapy. Um, They had uh, like DBT and CBT classes, none of which were talked about though, like with counselors or, you know, case managers or anything like that. It was just kind of, if you found it, you know, and it was all...
1: was that a different unit you were moved to or something?
2: Mm-hmm. So,
1: no.
2: most units are not like medical units. Most right. units are just, you know, general population. And once I was diagnosed with cancer, they sent me to a medical facility.
1: Okay. Um, At the
2: time of my arrest, I told them, like, I just am a drug user, I'm not a drug seller. Um, and yeah. they never offered me treatment. They never offered me any sort of like rehabilitation or any of that. It was straight to prison. See you for the, and you know, after five years, like they didn't Mm -hmm. any sort of offer whatsoever.
1: Did they make you do your whole time, your whole sentence? Mm
2: -hmm. So I was initially sentenced to 78 months, six and a half years. And then because I'm a nonviolent drug offender, um, they passed this law. Barack Obama passed a law that said we got a time cut. And um, so I got 15 months, I think, knocked off my sentence for that. And then I ended up serving 63 months total on 78. So in the federal system that you serve 85%, okay. there is no like good time or good behavior right. or anything like that.
1: Right, okay. Um, <laughs> it's. I just, uh, I wish that we had better stats prepared for this, but um, I just think, you know, it's it's so crazy how many people get caught up in that intent to distribute uh mm-hmm. thing when that's not i mean that that's probably not the case for like the large mm-hmm. majority of drug of drug uh, offenses right like mm-hmm. uh and I don't know I don't have the quantities off the top of my head but um I just think that's such a crappy loophole that people get caught you know p- people are are sentenced as like drug dealers when they're mm-hmm. mostly just drug users, you know?
0: Well, I can yeah. give you some stats. So in the United States, we have the largest percentage of our population incarcerated. And mo- and a lot of that is related to, to drugs. Um, you know, we have, we have 5% of the world population, but we have 25% of the people on planet earth are in car United States citizens. So that's mm-hmm. way out of whack. Um, it makes my blood boil just to listen to this really, because, you know, (laughs) I've studied this enough to understand that if you take somebody um, like her story, I can already like it pings. Okay. This is, this is a social, this is environmental. This, this substance use is about environmental factors. So if you're, you know, if a person is taught at a young age, it's okay to use substances or cope to use substances, then, there's going to be a tremendous amount of my mental factors related with the use. So you take that person and then you put them in a place where they're going to be traumatized and you're on edge all the time. So really you're just make, I mean, there's no way around it. You make, you make addiction worse by putting people in prison. Now, do I think? I don't think that people can just, you can, you know, you can kill somebody or, or harm somebody or, or steal something and there's not consequences for that but to expect those consequences to help somebody that you use, despite negative consequences is really insanity,
1: you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And all it does is make it harder. It just makes everything harder. It it does not Mm -hmm. help the situation. You know, I mean, if you as like society or as a society member want to like punish people for whatever crimes you believe in, um, and then have them return to society as a better person, um, mm-hmm. which I think most people that would be their intention. I mean, unless you just want someone to rot in jail for the rest of their lives, but for these charges, nobody is talking about that. So, um, but what what happens is is um, it just works against people. You know, you can't. It, it's it it just ruins. Like it, I guess it. Uh, it ruins the populations. You know what I mean? Like every person that goes through this is not coming out the other side, a better person. Uh, So I do have
0: some stats I'll give you real quick. And this is something I, according to in 2017, according to the latest FBI reports, just over 1.6 million people were arrested for drug law violations and 85% of those, these people were arrested for possession. So this is, this is FBI stats. That's 85% of the 1.6 million people that were arrested for drug violations were possession. Um, and that's also, it says, despite legalization in some States, most of these arrests are still for cannabis and the number of arrests actually rose. And that's, what's really interesting is like, I just wrote to me, you know, um, especially when it comes to like cannabis the laws are more harmful many times than the actual substance for me it was i addicted to marijuana of course i would smoke and smoke and smoke forever like but you know did like did that does that mean it needs to be a schedule one narcotic like with classified as more addictive than heroin and cocaine no that's ridiculous like You know, and I've and I've just written the paper I've written recently says that when you decriminalize it, it actually got the arrests go up because they want to give more of those civil tickets. Well, not arrests, but ticketing like they want to give out more of those civil tickets that are like traffic tickets. So, I mean, to me, it's just like it are. I would dare to say that, like, this is like for many populations, especially for African-Americans who are disproportionately arrested for cannabis. Like I think it's like I don't know. I can look it up in a minute. It's like a tremendous amount of times more than everybody else. Like it's a way you can to keep people in prison to produce different things. And there's a system. Like in the state of South Carolina, if I if you go visit somebody. You know, they're making money. It's like an amusement park. You have to buy a little key fob to buy things when you go in there. That's like, I don't know, 8 or $10. Then if you want to take a picture, you have to pay the prison to take the picture. If you want to eat, you have to buy their food. Like, they sell you everything, every item you could possibly think of. So this is a cash business. like, And it's ridiculous. Like, in South Carolina, our... Our, um, our mental health ward, our accommodations ward for mental health has been under investigation for abuse by the staff in the last several years. So mm-hmm. that's, to me, there's something wrong do, as a society. I think it feels good to punish as opposed. Mm-hmm. Do we really want people to get well or, you know, or do we want to continue the same? Do we want to make people more likely to use? Do we want to make it worse?
2: there was a woman when I was in prison who um, she was a wonderful woman and it was the first time she'd ever been arrested and she was an African-American woman. She was in her late fifties and she got arrested for cannabis and um, got a life sentence Mm -hmm. in the federal system. A life sentence is your natural born life. You die in prison um, for cannabis. And now in the state she was arrested in, it is legal for recreational use. So
1: are they trying to get her out?
2: She just got out actually. Um, And I think some, it was like, I think Donald Trump like pardoned her, you know, or something like that. And um, but she literally, when I met her, she literally thought that she would be in prison for the rest of her life. And it wasn't even her cannabis. It was her son's. Mm. And the way that the federal system works, they have conspiracy laws where if, um, one person's guilty, you all are, um, and her and her three sons went to prison and, um, she's now home. And I think her three sons are as well. Um, but to think that someone's first charge and it to be cannabis to get a life sentence is absolutely insane.
0: Mm -hmm. Like, Yeah
2: absolutely crazy and she served 27 years wow 27 years in federal prison wow
0: Yep, I got a buddy um he served 10 years I mean it was like he did have he had a lot of he had like 10 pounds of marijuana or something like that but he served 10 years for Mm -hmm. for that you know and again it goes back to uh, is is that supposed to help somebody get better I mean it may help them come out with PTSD and be traumatized completely when they come out, you know?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Kirsten, how long have you been out now?
2: Three years and three months.
1: And what's your life been like in those three years?
2: It wasn't exactly beautiful. Um, I got out with a chip on my shoulder Mm -hmm. and I was angry. Um, and I continued to use, um, for about nine months of that after I got out and then I went to a inpatient rehab and, um, have not used meth since. Um, how has it,
1: been, how has it been trying to adjust back to, you know, reality or, or, you know, just life, like <laughs> trying to build a life for yourself. How has that been?
2: When I got out of prison, my mom said that, I was a hard, like hard to deal with, like hard to talk to, hard to, um, like I was real quiet and, um, to myself and didn't really trust anybody. And it's a, it's been a long road of working on myself. Um, you know, different, you know, counseling, different, you know, avenues of, of trying to get better. Um, and it's not been easy for sure. Um, but I'm grateful for the experience that I had, that I did go through. Um, unfortunately, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, not the best circumstances, but um, but it, I can find some gratitude in the fact that, you know, I don't ever have to go back there. Um, mm-hmm. And it's hard, like, finding a job that, <clears throat> like, that whole check the box issue. um yeah you know, a lot of places don't want to hire convicted felons. I can't work in the field. I wanted to anymore. When I was growing up, I wanted to be in the medical field. Mm. Um, and unfortunately that's not going to happen because yeah. of the type of charge that I have. Unfortunately with drug charges, it's okay sometimes, but in the federal system, I was um, charged with possession with intent to distribute. And so, and with the intent part, they're not having it. Right. Um,
1: well, I, and you have felonies, right? So right. Uh, how, funny, how much income
0: did you had at your disposal to have representation when you were charged initially? Cause I, I feel like if you would have been like, I feel like some, I, I see people on a regular basis get intent to distribute um, and they have financial means for very good representation and it gets dropped to possession. You know, and I mean, it's 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 up there in in the above the limit that's that's caught that's considered they, distribution. But I feel like that's where the system is really imbalanced. I mean, people, absolutely. I feel like if you, it's they put they put you in a position where you have to plead guilty a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, funding a lot sometimes is related to conviction rates. so you you know it's more about getting the conviction rate. You know, imagine if we had funding, if imagine if law enforcement funding was based on, um, how I many, like, like lowering your arrest rates.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Or, you know,
2: I, I remember when, um, when I went to court, I had a, I didn't have a public defender, or like, I had a, like, one step above a public defender because my co defendant, my boyfriend at the time, um, was, um, used in a public defender, the public defender's office. So it was a conflict of interest. And um, so they gave me a court appointed paid attorney that I didn't have to pay for. Um, And I remember he came to me before court and he told me that I could plead guilty right then and I could serve five years or I could take it to trial and I could risk serving 40 years. And I remember thinking, like I'm not going to die in prison over some drugs. Like I'll plead guilty to a, to the lesser time so that I don't have to serve 40 because right. they ha- they throw these like rates at you. Like the federal government, because of those outrageous like scale things has a 98% conviction rate.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's
2: because they scare people in court to the point of, okay, well, if um, you don't do this, we're going to do this. Right. right. And it, and it, so they have a huge conviction rate because they scare you know you into, into pleading guilty. And so when my attorney said that, I was like, "Ugh, you know, like oh. never been arrested, never been convicted of a felony. Like, what do you mean? You know, like
0: so imagine, okay? If you, imagine if you were innocent, completely innocent, <laughs> you still plead guilty." Right.
2: Because then you run the risk of serving 40 years for something that you didn't do. Like, what yeah. do you mean? Like, it was insane to think that, like, that was the scale, like five to 40 years. Like,
1: yeah. Yeah.
2: What it do you mean?
0: No, it
1: makes no sense. Yeah. But None. At the same
0: whatsoever. time, our governmental agencies like SAMHSA and NIDA are saying this is a disease. This is a brain disorder. But work is so... We have a, we have our government on one hand saying this is a brain disorder or a disease. And then on the other hand, we're going to, you know, that we're going to imprison you and give and make, make it harder for you to recover. And, and then wonder why. Mm-hmm. So is, do they really think that, you know, I mean, here, here's another yeah. thing that I want to ask you about, cause you talked about anger. So there's a theory and I've talked to some, uh, some, light, some, uh, Addictions counselors and a therapist about this and there's so like when children are abused as like when children are like uh, abused or whatever um They develop this thing called rad. It's called reaction attachment disorder so because they weren't get they weren't nurtured as a little baby when they get older, they like fight their siblings and like try to attack people and stuff because mm-hmm. they feel like now I'm okay and nobody protected me. I'm going to kick everybody's ass. Like I'm gonna hurt you. Like and some kids have even like tried to, hurt, you know, do really violent things. But the theory is that like when you're in that system and you feel, you feel like society has kind of just kicked you to the curb and nobody was there to help you in recovery people start to get well and they're very, very angry. And they're like, fuck you, don't call me that. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're like, have you ever seen people that are like so angry back towards the system? Um, I feel like- i was
2: that person for a little while.
0: Yeah, that's definitely me. And I still get triggered. I'm being, I'm triggered right now listening to this conversation. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I I get, you know, what Mm -hmm. do we do? We take people with, especially with meth. I see it. So, and we take them and when they get arrested, it doesn't matter if it's caught with a ha- with a half a gram, we're going to take the worst picture of you and we're going to put you on a paper and then we're going to make money <laughs> off of that. Yeah. We're gonna, we're, oh, yeah. You know, I, I spoke one time at this presentation and I was talking about my risk factors. I was like, yeah, I had anxiety and that was associated with my substance use. And they was like, well, they just made your, they, they made your, they, took you and put you in the paper and made your anxiety worse. (laughs) You know, the Mm -hmm. system for a a huge generalized term makes addiction worse throughout, across Mm -hmm. the board and nobody cares. You know, when I was in jail, I was offered one treatment place and I'm not going to blast them on here right now, but that's a place that I'm not even allowed to refer people to because, uh, different, different parts of probation have, a, have deemed that place inappropriate, <laughs> but that's the only treatment I was offered. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I can just feel I'm angry right now. I, I am that person. Like I want to fight back as, towards everybody. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so what do you, what do you do for work now, Kirsten?
2: I work for a telemarketing company. Um, currently,
1: was it hard um, to get that, was it hard to get that job?
2: No, and I'm gonna tell you why. The people that own that place very much believe in second chances for other, you know, for people. And I could not be more happier and in, in the environment that I work in because, like, they are um, considerate of like if I need a mental health day, I just call them and let them know. Like they don't ask for proof. Um, they don't ask for, you know what I mean? I'm I'm yeah. having a day, and I'm good, and I need a day, and they just okay. Um. And so you, you got, know, if, if you got
1: lucky. <clears throat> you, yeah. You basically absolutely. got lucky, right? And found a place that
2: mm-hmm.
1: was open to that. Yeah.
2: In the past year, um, I got a couple certifications, like CPS, mental health, forensic peer mentor certifications, and mm-hmm. went to work um, as a substance, uh, substance. Uh, I don't know what it really is, like a tech, I guess, um, dependency at a rehab. Yeah. and um and like it was okay you know got to lead a couple you know a couple groups and and try to help them you know first 30 days learn what it's like you know to be a person living in long-term recovery um and it was good I mean I loved it I absolutely loved it but unfortunately they couldn't offer me full-time position and I needed that and so yeah um I had to stop working there, and it really hurt my feelings. Have
1: you had Have you had any experiences because of your past um, with like housing or mm-hmm. loans or banks or schools or anything like that?
2: Not necessarily with school, and that's my fault because I haven't tried. Honestly, I haven't tried to go back to school. That's my next um, goal. Um, but with housing, for sure. So in Athens, there's probably two, maybe three places to rent from um, that are felon friendly. Um, And it's only if you haven't been arrested in so many years or your background doesn't have violence or like, there's a lot of hoops actually have to jump through. Yeah. And um, it was extremely difficult. I'm grateful that, um, you know, a friend of mine worked for, one of those places, and I got a, um, you know, an apartment pretty easily in that aspect. Um, but when I got out of treatment, like it was, it was really difficult for me to yeah. find a place to live.
1: Well, and, and again, now, it, it, it seems like you had to get lucky again. Like, right, you had to have had like to find somebody. a place, find a place where your friend worked, and like, <laughs> you know,
2: I had, to, I had to know somebody for sure.
1: Right. So your housing and your employment were both kind of one-off mm-hmm. you know lucky chance kind of thing
2: and-, and until i get my record expunged which um after a few years i probably will be able to do that but um that's what's gonna happen like and it's not fair yeah. that because i made a mistake nine years ago right That for the rest of my life i have to deal with that like it's not very it's very stigmatized for sure yeah um that for the rest of my life, I have this label across my forehead of, you know, I made bad decisions when I was 22 years old. Like who doesn't at 22 years old, you know, I mean, I'm not saying everybody rides around with a bunch of meth in the car, but at the same time, like who doesn't make bad decisions? We all do that as human beings. And I don't feel like felons should have that label attached to them for the rest of their lives either.
0: Do you feel when you talk about that, when you talk about having that across your forehead or like when you're in that position where you have to talk, when you have to check the box, do you feel Mm -hmm. shame? Yeah, Mm -hmm.
2: because I feel like who I, or what I did in the past, is not necessarily who I am anymore. Like I made a bunch of bad choices, but I'm not a bad person. And I feel like that, you know, having to say, you know, I'm a convicted felon. Like there's obviously a little bit, um, better recovery friendly language that I can use now. Um, but then when it boils down to it, like returning citizen or convicted felon, like people know what that means and people judge you for whatever that looks
1: like. And so, you know, it's like, and I don't know your family demographic and everything, but you know, if you, if you come, if you don't have any resources at your disposal, when you get out of a situation like that, you're you're screwed. You, there's no way. I mean, for someone to get out to dig themselves out of that hole with no assistance, um, financially and you know emotionally and whatever, um, I feel like your chances are definitely slim to none. You know, so um, I know myself. Like if I if I didn't have the family I had, there's no way I would be doing well today. You
2: know, yeah. and I have like, I I can give you a little bit of background on that. I grew up with my mom because um, my dad and my mom divorced when I was younger, but my, my dad's always been there and he's always done anything he could to help me financially or to do, you know, go above and beyond. But there came a point in my, in my use that he just said, I'm done and I love you, but I don't want you to die. And I remember at my sentencing, my dad, the judge, you know, asked if, um, you know, my family had anything they wanted to say. My dad stood up and he told the judge, thank you. Mm. And I said to myself like six and a half years and you're telling this judge, thank you. And he said to the judge, I would much rather know that my daughter's safe for the next six and a half years than have to bury her in six months. And that's when I realized the severity of my actions doesn't just affect me. It affected my family too. And then I got out of, my dad came, While I was in prison, you know, he came to see me, you know, four or five times and um, he cried every time and um, it makes me want to cry now, but, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I I realized like, it's not just me, I was affecting, you know, and uh, my dad, uh, my first year out of prison had a heart attack because Mm -hmm. I was back down that same road and um, that's when I went to rehab you know, that's, that's when I decided like I'm done, but my family is this crap yep. and he's done everything he can, you know, to help me. And what's I think the most beneficial in my recovery is that for the past two Christmases, I've not only been welcome in my dad's home, but um, I've been clean in my dad's home oh, yeah. and that's probably like, I don't know what else I could ask for really. Like I'm fully self-supporting. I have my own house now. Um, I, mean, I haven't bought it. I'm renting it from somebody. Um, but it's mine. I um, am able to hold a full-time job and have had the same job for two and a half years. Like
1: mm-hmm. that's
2: insane.
1: Yeah.
2: And the biggest thing, the biggest reward that I can get is to know that my dad's proud of me now.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, so do you think that, what do you, that's awesome. What has helped you the most to sustain recovery? Oh, well, all of the
2: different resources, I think, that are available in, so the treatment facility that I went to um, was inpatient, and they taught me all kinds of coping skills um, that I never thought possible for a long time. My coping skills were um, in a spoon. Um, (laughs) I didn't have anything else. That's all I knew, and they taught me a whole lot of different things of, um, you know, how to deal with life. Um, and then I have, uh, I'm on the, um, peer advisory board now at one of the RCOs, um, here in Athens. And, um, I think that like that resource of, you know, with the RCOs in, in Athens, there's a couple here, like there's unlimited resources, unlimited places, people, um, you know, peer check-in, whatever that looks like, just being able, I feel like to open my mouth, um, and just tell people like what's going on with me and to have that support system, I think is what's been like most beneficial for me.
0: Um, and a lot of people tell me, I always say, I get angry and I say, why can't this be done on the front end? Like, and people say, well, you weren't probably, you weren't open to it. Do y'all feel like you'd be open to education about stuff like that before, before addiction? Yeah. Before, Mm. like, well, not so much coping, but like, you know, I think it would be helpful if somebody said, Michael, that white noise that you hear because you have ADHD and that social anxiety, when you use and that goes away, that's going to make you high risk. You're not probably ever going to be able to use without it becoming addiction because it helps about six different mental health conditions within you, or maybe three, not six, but three. And I feel like that would at least give me a warning, you know, at least a warning to know, you know what I'm saying? Like,
1: well, I, th- I think it's just, I mean, I don't know if I would have listened or not, but I don't know and, if
0: I would have listened
2: and, either.
1: And I'm sure, I'm sure there were people that I came across that maybe tried to help in some form or fashion. I can't really remember, but, um, but I think it's just a matter of how you approach the the problem. And if you're approaching it from this punitive you know, you're a criminal. You're a piece of shit. You should be in jail. Like,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you're you're never gonna be able to get helped. But I think if you're if you come at it from uh, a health perspective and a, a compassionate pers- you know approach, like you're suggesting, then you know then there's opportunities for mm-hmm. that that seed to uh, to take root. You know, but I remember I also- getting, ar- getting arrested once and sitting in the police uh, the police station getting processed. And the, uh, there was this one cop, man, and he was just making fun of me. He was, I was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was a heroin addict and he um, was just belittling me and degrading mm-hmm. me and laughing at me and like pointing and like teasing and like trying to rile me up, you know, and it's embarrassing, but I was literally in tears. I was like, cause I, I got arrested for like a drug, you know, some drug related thing. I wasn't. I mean, I, I was ashamed and embarrassed and, uh, you know, I was scared for my parents to find out. And like, um, like I didn't want to be there. I, I didn't hurt anyone. I wasn't like trying to do anything bad. And it was, I, it was weird cause I could see one of the cops, like he kind of understood that and he told the guy to like knock it off. Kind of like, you know, like, uh, you know, under his breath, he kind of told the guy like, yo man, like stop, like, you know, this dude didn't do anything, you know? Um, so, but it's just, that's how we're treated, you know?
2: Mm-hmm. I remember when I got arrested, um, for my federal charges, it was in my hometown, like my, like where I went to high school. And, um, I avoided that County for that very specific reason, because I knew everyone there and I didn't, I, I did feel that shame, you know, that guilt of like, I don't want y'all to see me like this. Cause that wasn't how I grew up, like in a criminal you know, aspect. I mean, I did drugs for a long time, but like I said, I never got arrested until I was 21. And, um, I remember sitting in the, um, interrogation room and the sheriff, um, uh, and I knew each other from the time I was 13 years old because I used to stay the night at his house because I was friends with, um, his daughter and, um, he pulled up a picture of me from my freshman year of high school, which I don't even know where he got it from because it wasn't on my Facebook. It was, you know, I don't, maybe it was his daughter's Facebook. I don't know. And he asked me like, who's like, where's this girl? And he very much like demoralized me of like,
0: mm.
2: like who are you right now of like, compared to this? And um, it hurt my feelings, you know? And I looked at him like with this, I was high, you know, with this attitude of like, she's been dead, you know, like trying to like have, be hard or like have this like yeah. street mentality. When in reality, I just wanted to crawl up in a ball and cry. Yeah. And um, they put me on the front page of the paper and it said, um, hometown girl, biggest drug bust in 20 years. And they put a picture of me in high school next to my mugshot. Um, and then months later, you know, another one, you know, Oconee County girl faces drug charges in federal court, you know? And it's like, for what? You know, I got arrested with 9.6 grams of meth. Like it wasn't even like,
1: like what's that worth?
2: I mean, it's at the time it was like, $400. $400. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: You know, like not even enough. It was just in three different bags, right. you know, that's why they charged me with intent that it was a one bag.
0: Right.
1: It would have
2: been a possession charge. I would have gone to state prison and out of in a year and a half.
0: Mm-hmm. And I can hear the pain in your voice now years mm-hmm. later because it's, I mean, it's obviously to anybody listening society mm-hmm. in general, you know, how many, okay. How many times do we see stories about addiction? on the newspaper. And then how many times do we see recovery on the paper? The numbers are similar. Mm-hmm. It's I mean there's about as many people struggling with the SUD as there are people in long term recovery.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: and, I, and there was a friend of ours, uh, Bill Kingle, he posted videos earlier um that talked about, you know, when you look at the media, when you look at television, you look at pop culture, you only see the side of the family that's being hurt, which is valid. Um Mm-hmm. or you, you see the 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 side of the police officers or the negative side or you have shows like celebrity rehab or intervention <laughs> and you see the the negative 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 but there's no mm-hmm. show about long term recovery you know and that's where it's not society only gets gets 90% negative you know it's changing a little bit and there're certain things happening but you even even the news still sensationalizes it like you know uh, if you like you know you, you talked about your interview they didn't they didn't it wasn't portrayed the way you thought it was going to be mark you know um mm-hmm. it's not portray- it's you know there's nothing sexy and exciting about recovery you know what's the overdose rate is is what's what gets uh what gets viewers you know uh whitney houston probably had time when she wasn't using but they only published the times when she was having issues so uh, that's the real downfall is as you know whether whether we start whether the drug laws change or not, I think it's important for society to start to start trying to view what's actually happening to people. you know, I think a lot of people truly believe that you can shame people into behavior change you know yeah. you, can, you know you can you can you just they, you can stop people from behaviors with shaming
1: you know but remember, I do. remember scared straight <laughs> yeah I wonder what their success rates are
2: right well I, I mean, remember I, I remember going back to um I went looking for that article like because I wanted to see like years after I got out of prison um and I went looking for it on Facebook and I found it and there was a bunch of comments you know obviously on there and I read them, which I probably shouldn't have. And it pissed me off because it was a bunch of people talking crap. And um, I shared on there after seven years of, you know, being in prison and then getting out. And I told them, like, exactly where they could take it, you know. Yeah. Um, and then I said, this is what I look like now. Sheriff Barry, why don't you share that? Um, yeah. And I put a picture of me, you know, it was a year Um, in recovery. And uh, the newspaper reached out to me and then did a follow-up story on what it looks like on a road to sobriety. Um, Wow! And I was extremely grateful that they allowed me that opportunity because like I said, like I might've done some bad things and I might've gone to prison and I definitely paid for what I did, but I also have an equal right to recover, you know? So.
1: That's cool that they did that. I think that's
2: one I, good thing that they did.
1: Yeah, yeah, that must have been like a good journalist for once or something.
2: And they interviewed my dad. Um, at, they asked me like, you know, who can we talk to? And they interviewed my dad, and and that was probably like it was like a feel good. piece. And he, I called him while I was sitting there talking to the journalist, yeah. and um, and I, I, he said, so you mean like a feel good, like, you know, like telling people how great everything's doing. I said, he said, I'd absolutely do that. Okay.
1: <laughs> sure. Wow.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that's uh, that's cool. Probably a unique, uh, you know, thing. <laughs> not not, not the cool. normal for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. Yep.
0: And I think a lot of that is just like I think they don't know. Like uh, Robbie Brazil uh, did a he he had an interview with a a reporter in Columbia, South Carolina. And I was like, wow, the language that dude uses is way different than what anybody else usually says. And he said, well, we've talked to him and we've had a yeah. conversations with him. So, like, he kind of, like, guided that right. you know, and told him this is what you should say and this is what you should call it and this stuff. And he was open to that. And I think other people would be open to that. But I think at the mm-hmm. same time, it's, it's hard, you know. We had um, – you know it's it's hard for me i feel like sometimes i feel like i'm the only person advocating for anybody so if you're in a city council meeting and you're the one person and everybody else looks at math is evil demon people um you know and it's hard and that's a hard weight to carry and i feel like that that's how people from in recovery have to come together and advocate you know um and if we don't, we're just going to continue to get destroyed by society. And I, I think a lot of it is not intentional. Um, I think a lot of it is just lack of understanding. Five years ago, I would have never been involved with the syringe service program. But when I look at the evidence, you're three times more likely to stop using in a syringe service program. Why would I not want to help with that? You know, I, I would give somebody um, – I would give somebody just about anything if it was, if it increased their chances to stop using by three times, you know, but most, yeah. but a lot of society would not do that, you know, because they're not educated Yeah, Just mm-hmm. like, you know, um, just like, you know, people would be people. Uh, the worst is, is there's a lot of people that I know, you know, that, that used to use, you know, they don't really call it recovery, whatever. I don't know, but they, they, they've have overcome or sustain recovery or whatever you want to call it, they look down tremendously on other people using or people that use alcohol and have issues like look down on people that use meth or heroin or different Mm -hmm. stuff. And I just think, I don't know. I I think somehow advocates have to come together or otherwise it's, it's too much for one person to try to hold that weight on their shoulder in any given environment.
1: Oh, definitely. I, you know, I think most people in the recovery community um, probably don't agree with a lot of the things we're talking about. And I know as someone who works in the recovery field, people often think it's strange that um, that we work in addiction, but yet advocate for things like legalization and decriminalization, you know, they, because off, you know, on the surface, people think, "Wait, so you're trying to treat addiction, but you want legalization of drugs?" You know, but it takes education and, and looking into it deeper to realize, "Well, yeah, because you know we're hurting people tremendously by criminalizing." You know, um, we're I really making,
2: like the- Go ahead. Sorry,
1: uh, I was just going to say we're you know we're we're creating all of these negative consequences for people. You know, all of these harmful consequences that make recovery so much more harder you know so um anyway so i just think that it just takes educating you know the general public but even within the recovery community itself kind of creating like a a legalization like movement or something whatever you want to call it like within the recovery community
2: i really like the um with like decriminalization and all all of that i really like the whole um, the, the concept that I don't know if it's just in Georgia or if it's everywhere, but like the whole rehabilitation over incarceration idea. Um, mm. like I think to myself, like if they had offered me treatment, you know, before mm. I went to prison, like what would my life look like today? You know, yeah. or if they'd offered me like a deferment program of like, you know, if, or if like first offender, you know, or any of that,
1: Yeah. like,
2: what would my life look like today? Um,
1: that was your first. offense. Then, Oh my god! Mm-hmm. So, a lot of luckily,
2: with all of my it was I was my first felony offense. Yeah. Well, yeah, luckily with all of my um, with with all of my charges, um, like one of them, the guy that I got arrested with took all of those charges away. Said that I didn't have anything to do with it, which technically I didn't. Um, all the burglaries that I got arrested for, um, and then my federal felony was the nine grams of meth, um. And then I got out on bond and I got another felony after that
1: okay. because I
2: kept using, you know, yeah. but, uh, aside from that, I'm like, that's it. I got three things on my record and, um, two of which can go away, um, after five years. So hopefully I'll get that squared away. But
1: which ones are those, which ones can go away?
2: So the felonies, I have one state felony, and one federal felony. So, my state felony, I completed um, my probation without any sort of revocation, and so I can get that one um, taken off my record. And then my federal felony, after five years, I can ask for a because um, I completed probation and didn't have any sort of revocation on it either. I can ask for my um, my record to be expunged. So
1: okay, yeah, I
2: just have to not get get in trouble in the next five years. So
1: yeah, yeah, I've been going through the expungement process on my own record for like five years probably um, yeah. because it's in a different state and the system's different there and they're going through a bunch of different things and changes and stuff. So anyways, for the last five or six years, I've been trying to expunge my record, but um, not there yet. So we'll see.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mine I can't in South Carolina. I don't know if it's the difference between the States, but because my, the charges were so close together. There has to be like a span of time in between charges for you to even be eligible Mm -hmm. for expungement. So I think out of 13, there's like two that are like super small misdemeanors, Mm -hmm. like the big one, like possession of a controlled substance or possession of a stolen prescription pad. Those things, DUI, those things can't get expunged because they're too close to other charges. So even though these things are going on two decades later, I am still it's still there and I can never, almost a decade
2: I get it. I,
0: I can never get away from it. Like I'll never ever ever be able to get away from it. I have a friend you know that I'm real close with um and she's in prison um and we talk on the phone and stuff and I was kind of like a mentor to her like cuz she she stopped using when she went into incarceration. She's been in there like 3 years now. She hasn't used in like 3 years. But I was kind of like her mentor or whatever in the beginning, and I helped her a little bit. But I, I can never visit her ever, ever in prison because I have been on probation and because I have certain charges. So it doesn't matter if it's 40 yeah. years oh, – Hopefully, she'll be out before 40 years. But I, I can never visit people in prison mm-hmm. in South Carolina unless they're a relative.
1: That's <laughs> like, so crazy, man. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no matter how long, never. It's crazy. Like, I wonder what the
1: thinking was behind that. Like whoever made that rule, like,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Oh, and they, and if they've been in trouble before, they can't come back. You know, yeah. like it doesn't make any sense. Like what
2: I'm working on being able to go into like the Clark County jail here and uh-huh. um, had to fill out this paper and like talk about all of my stuff, you know? And <laughs> yeah. it's like, and they're going to let me, I mean, it just is a process, but and you can't be on probation. Can't have any warrants. Know about like, but they want to know all of like your stuff, and I, I don't know if there's like certain charges that like would disqualify me or not. But yeah, it's crazy
0: to think it, like
1: it comes like, back job, to bite you. Yeah, and my
0: job I can go into. So it's my job I go in the county jail anytime they'll let me come in. Nobody cares, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I could there's a job at this prison that she's at. It's Camille Graham something prison. They have a CPSS job. Vacant right now, and I probably could get that job i I bet I could get that job I bet I could work there but I, but it's just the technicality of you can't visit somebody so mm-hmm. as at work, I could go and wherever they don't even check i go straight into the courthouse they don't make me empty my pockets or anything like
1: how I don't did even, you how did you get your job without the background check being a problem. Was it because it was a peer support position?
0: Yeah, because you, you can mm-hmm. get it. Some states this is an issue too and I've learned like in Ohio, certain charges you can't be peer support either which is wild like. It wow. is wild. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Georgia's not like that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but they, it's, the, I mean,
2: it's, it's a requirement for like my forensic peer mentor um, uh, certification like that is a requirement that you've been to prison and have certain convictions. Like they're not worried about it. Yeah. But it's that lived experience. Like they want somebody that has the lived experience to be able to share, you know, hope with, right, right. with somebody else. And like with a returning cis- citizen going to like DRC, you know, or, you know, going to, you know, the Art RSAP program or something like that. Like they have mm-hmm. um forensic peer mentors in Learendale State Prison right now, um, you know, doing peer support. And like that's I think my end goal like is to be able to do something like that. Um, and I haven't gotten there yet. I haven't found the right job to apply for. Um, Mm -hmm. but, um, like, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to be able to go back into a prison and, um, and share like what it's like once you, you know, get it, you know, get out and stop using, you know, get out and start a new life without using drugs. Like you don't have to do all that. Like you can, you know, satisfy probation. You know, you can get your life back. Like, I want to be able to do that. And, um, hopefully I will be.
1: That's awesome. Any
0: crazy how we know how, we know how we could help people. Mm-hmm. We can see how people could be helped, just not able to do it. Yeah. <laughs> but, I don't know.
2: a couple different like places in Georgia um, are doing like the, that work. Like they they have like a I think like twelve people right now um, in different facilities across the state doing that and they just they get federal you know funding from or not federal I think state funding from um, the state I think the state board um, of I don't remember exact don't don't never mind but <laughs> they get money from the state let's just say that um, and like are able to do that um, and I, I applied for a job there and they offered me a position at the um, at the DRC but because of um, budget cuts with everything going on Um, I can't start right now. So it's just kind of like in limbo of if I actually get to do it or not. Hopefully it'll happen. Um, But.
0: Well, it's getting close to the end of our hour. So we're trying to keep our podcast at a regulated time, but I really appreciate you coming home and shedding a tear and digging (laughs) down and and telling us because it is tough. And I think a lot of people feel like you feel but there's a big barrier from them opening up and being honest about that. Um, so I really appreciate, hopefully we can work with you further in the future somehow. Um, did you want to say anything else, Mark, before we close? Um,
1: no, I think it's just important that, um, people take a look at how these drug policies have a negative impact on people's lives and over and society overall. And, um, all three of us have been negatively impacted by these drug policies. So, um, I just think it's important for people to realize that and take a look at it and question it. Um, even if you are someone in recovery, um, or just whoever, but just question these drug laws and say like, is there a better way we can do this? And, um, you know, luckily now, there's so much to look at, right? There's so many states, there's other countries, there's lots of decrim and and legalization going on. So we're not reinventing the wheel here, but I think it's, um, just important for people to have awareness for this issue. So, but thank you, Kirsten for coming on and, uh, and sharing so openly and, and, uh, we really appreciate it. You've been listening to the addictive podcast check us out on social media at the addictive podcast and challenges inc until next time